Um, welcome if you're online. I forgot to say that. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I hope you can see my bike. Maybe you can. So I was running. This, this bike used to belong to Kevin Hornacek, who was just playing the, the bass. It used to belong to his brother. And his brother Andy was an intern here about 10 years ago, and we were running together one morning, and Andy says, I need to sell my bike. And I said, why do you want to sell your bike? And he said, because I need to buy an engagement ring. I said, I can help you with that. And so he sold me his bike and his shoes and his helmet and his bike pump and a backpack full of gear right? It was as if he was like signing off, like just like riding off riding bikes forever, which wasn't actually what was happening. But what was happening was there was a big shift in his values and his desires, right? So if the symbol of Andy's old values was a road bike, the symbol of Andy's new values was an engagement ring. And uh, at one time in his life, what he desired was a road bike and he spent a lot of money buying this bike. And he bought a helmet and shoes and a bike pump and the whole works. But now he didn't want the bike anymore um, because there was something he wanted more. He wanted to marry this girl. And so he was selling a lot of stuff, <laughs> including this bike, to buy a ring. His values shifted. And as a result, here's the point. As a result of his value shifting, what he wanted changed. Right? As a result of his shift in values his desires changed. We're in this series called Anxiety and Joy. It's a study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. These are Christians living in this Roman colony called Philippi. The big theme of the letter of Philippians is joy. That's what this letter is famous for. Today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. I want to focus on Paul's shift in values and desires. He shares very transparently and frankly bluntly about his shift in values and the consequent shift in what he wants or what he desires. Ultimately, what we're talking about is joy. And what I hope we can see today is the shift that takes place in Paul's values, which consequently changes his desires. In other words, the change in what Paul believes to be most important results in his wanting different things, a change in what he wants. All right, for the sake of time, we'll skip over the second half of chapter 2. We might summarize the end of chapter 2 as Paul saying, whatever happens, I'm going to rejoice, and you should rejoice with me. So this is essentially how he ends chapter 2. I'm rejoicing. Whatever happens, I'm rejoicing. And it's not just about him, he says, and so you should rejoice with me. And then the very next sentence, which later gets formulated into chapters and verses, so it becomes the first, the first verse of chapter 3. But the very next sentence after rejoice with me is, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And initially, this just feels like he's a broken record, like he's just saying it again. But he's actually saying something that's one step deeper now. So at the end of chapter 2, he's like, hey, whatever happens, I'm going to rejoice, and I want you to rejoice with me. And now he takes it another level, and he says, further, further, like beyond what I just said, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So we said last week was a significant challenge inherent in the joy that Paul is writing about, both the joy that he says he has and the joy he's inviting us into, 
the Philippians, and then by extension, us, is not an easy, silly, situational happiness. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this deep, sustaining, peaceful cheerfulness that seems to thrive in life's most difficult situations. He is talking about a joy that's like a drought-resistant plant. It seems to do great when the environment is especially hard. Paul's inviting the Philippian Christians and by extension, he's inviting you and me into what some have called an indestructible joy, okay. a joy that cannot be defeated. To make up a word, it is an undefeatable joy. How is that kind of joy even possible? How is an indestructible, undefeatable joy even possible? Well, here's the somewhat startling logic that we discover in the pages of the Bible, all throughout the Bible, for such a quality of joy as this, this indestructible, undefeatable joy. We can summarize the logic with about six words. No place, no thing, no way. First, no place. There's no where. There's no place where God is not. This is the logic behind a joy that cannot be destroyed. Okay? There is no place that God is not. This is a truth that is revealed and then often reflected upon throughout Scripture. For instance, in Genesis, Jacob is running away from the consequences of his sin, runs out of gas, sleeps on the side of the road, wakes up and realizes with terror, actually, that this is the very house of God. There is no place I can go from God, that God himself is in this place, and he says, I was not aware of it. Later, King David, reflecting on the same thing in Psalm 139, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So unlike the gods of the various nations surrounding Israel, the God that is revealed in the Bible is the creator of all things, all that exists. This God is, the word is omnipresent. That's the theological word, omnipresent, everywhere. Therefore, there is no place outside of the presence of God. You can't get away from God. So, first, no place. Second piece of the logic is there's no thing. There's nothing powerful enough to separate us from the love and the presence of God. Paul reflects on this in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He goes on to say, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, all things are created by God, therefore no thing has the power to separate us from God. There is no place apart from God. There is no thing powerful enough to separate us from God. And then finally, there is no way. There is no way for the joy that the Bible writers talk about to be destroyed, defeated, or lost because Christ cannot be destroyed, defeated, or lost. And the joy that Paul and others are talking about is found 
in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ. This is why he begins this section that we're reading today, which we call chapter 3, with the very simple statement, rejoice in the Lord. If this joy that he is talking about is found in Christ, is experienced in Christ, if it is, in other words, a part of belonging to Christ, having a relationship with Christ, being in a relationship with the Christ who is victorious in life and in death, then the joy that Paul's talking about is undefeatable joy, right? It is indestructible joy. This is hardcore, but this is what Paul's saying. He can lose all things. He can lose all people, but he can never lose Christ. And therefore, even when circumstances are so dire that it would be natural to assume that joy is impossible in that situation, Paul is saying you can't defeat this joy. It is, it is undefeatable joy. He's talking about a joy that is in Christ and Christ remains because there is no place apart from God. There is no thing that can rival God's power, and there is no way that Christ, Christ's love, Christ's presence, Christ's goodness, all that is in Christ, including Christ's joy, can be defeated. So Paul is assuring the Philippians, and he is assuring us that this joy cannot be taken away. And this is just a powerful statement of assurance. This is the, this is, friends, this is the ultimate, no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. That's what this is. And that's why some of you came today, I think. You need to hear that. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. There is a joy that is possible that is not destructible. It cannot be defeated. It cannot be stolen from you. It perseveres. Life, death, everything in between. It's a statement of assurance. So that's how this section begins. That was one sentence. And then here's the next sentence. We get into a bit of a boxing match, and Paul issues a warning. And the warning is because there are people who know what Paul is saying, which is the same thing that John said, and the same thing that Peter said, and the same thing that Jesus said a generation before them. But there are people who hear what Paul's saying and, and say, he's wrong. Paul's wrong. Paul's not right. There are those who are hearing Paul talk about this joy that is this undefeatable joy because there's no place apart from God. There's no power that can rival God. There is nothing that can separate us from the, from the presence of Christ because he died and rose again and now he has, he has risen as a victorious. He is the ultimate power over even death. And they're like, no, no, Paul, you're wrong. You're all wrong about that. And so Paul's aware of that, and he suddenly launches into, like, one of the most verbally intense assaults that I know on record of Paul. This is what he says, verse 2 of chapter 3. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Okay. Have you ever been so, like, triggered that you unleash a string of insults that's just laced together with such eloquence that the people around you kind of go, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know you had that. Have you, have you ever, ever had something like that happen? Uh, my sisters were all in Italy. This is like a long time ago. Don't hold it against anybody. It's like 15 years ago. They're in Italy on vacation. They're walking through the streets of Florence at night. Some dude comes up behind one of my sisters and grabs her, pushes her purse and yanks it. She doesn't let go. Instead, she fights back. I won't tell you which sister this is, but she went on to have an amateur boxing career, so it didn't, 
didn't end well for the dude. And in the process, she unleashes this string of insults that caused all of my other sisters to go, oh my gosh, like, where'd you learn that? Intense reaction to something that feels so offensive, so Oh, no, that is not going to happen here, that this is what is evoked in the heart of the, of the human and of the saint, Paul, right? This is how Paul, like, begins this point in this letter. He's addressing the, the Jewish establishment and, and those who are saying that this message of indestructible joy in Christ is false. How is he addressing them? With insults, really intense insults. Remember, um, the, the Christian community in Philippi began about 15 years before Paul writes this, and it began with the conversion of some very interesting characters and their whole families. In other words, the, this is so important because the church in Philippi begins with non-Jewish people, Gentile people who become followers of Jesus. And the reason this is so important is that this is revealing and declaring to the world that the love of Christ is so big and so broad that it is, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. You don't have to be Jewish to, to be a part of this household of faith. This is the theme in Acts 16. We've talked about it several times over the last couple of months. People convert to Christ and they say, come be a part of my household. And then the, and Paul and the leaders, they go and they, they say, yes, we believe that you're now part of our household. We're sharing the same faith with you. So this is the background. But what's happened since is that people who are a part of this re- really intense, legalistic zealous segment of the Jewish community have come in and they've said, no, 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 actually, you're not a part of God's household. You're not a part of God's household. You're not, it's not enough to be forgiven from your sin and to embrace the grace of God. You've got to become Jewish. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to obey all the Jewish rules. You've got to do all the Jewish things in order to be accepted into the household of God. So Paul's in prison, and he hears about these zealous Jews who have come to Philippi. This is like his home church. He loves these people, and they are teaching that salvation is a result of works. It is not a result of grace. These guys are, in a sense, they're coming up behind the Christians, and they're trying to grab the purse. They're trying to, like, steal the joy and replace it with burden is what they're trying to do. I mean, these Philippian Christians are known for their joy, and it's because they've been embraced by the grace of God, and these people are trying to steal that joy for them, so Paul unleashes. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Dogs, unlike in our culture, are like the lowest of the low. That's like an insult in the Bible. If you're a dog, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's cutting deep, and it's ironic because the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. And so here Paul says, watch out for those dogs. And then he says, they're evildoers, which is ironic because they pride themselves in doing good, but they're actually doing evil. What is the evil that Paul is referring to? It is the evil of misleading people, calling it spiritual leadership, but actually pushing them towards more burden, more guilt, more oppression. Those who are supposed to be shepherding the people of Israel toward God are failing to do so. Instead, as Jesus pointed out a generation earlier, they're heaping mountains of religious rules onto their shoulders. Paul says, let's just call it what it is. You're doing evil. You're supposedly religious leaders, but you're really doing evil. And then this is the mother of all insults. He says, you mutilators of the flesh. Okay, now it's 
personal <laughs> with these guys. Because the mark, the proud mark of all men in the Jewish faith is circumcision. And even in the Old Testament books, the earliest, the, the, the mark of a Jewish man as circumcision was declared to be a symbol. And what it was supposed to be is an indication of a heart that was devoted to God. There's even places where the prophets are like, your heart should be circumcised. Your ears should be circumcised. They're not talking about cutting the heart. They're saying that physical circumcision should be a symbol of entire devotion to God. This should be like the condition of your heart given over to God. But Paul is not just calling these guys dogs and evildoers. He's saying your religion is just a joke. It's for show. The mark on your bodies has no spiritual significance at all. This mark, which they believe, makes them special. They act like it makes them superior. Paul says it means nothing. You're not marked for God. He says, you've just mutilated yourself. Oh, I'm telling you, this is so intense. The Greek word for circumcised sounds like the Greek word for mutilated. They're very similar and they rhyme. And so this final insult would have landed like a lyric in a rap. It would have been pithy and powerful and insulting and memorable. They would have walked away going, oh, my, and, and like hearing it echo in their minds for probably days. You're not marked for God. You've mutilated yourself. The Jews in their pride, not all, but these Jews, would call themselves the circumcision. Can you imagine that? We are the circumcision. We, it's like we are the stuff. We are the ones. We're the marked ones. Like, here we are. And so Paul writes, no, no, no. It's we who are the circumcision. He's just taunting these guys. We, it's we who serve God by his spirit. We who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then he plays with them some more. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So he's really just kind of playing their game. He speaks their language. He uses their buzzwords. He's able to do so because he was one of them. In case you didn't know that, the Apostle Paul used to be one of these guys. And in, in many ways, he kind of still is. And so here he just clicks off his Jewish credentials just to really put it right in their face. He says, if anyone thinks they've got reason to put confidence in their flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which means I was not a convert to Judaism like some of you. I was born Jewish. I mean, this is like his montage. This is like his highlight film. He's going to click through it here. Of the people of Israel, this is a statement of racial purity, Father Abraham has two sons initially. One is Ishmael with his wife's mistress. Not a great idea. So then there's Isaac who has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's the line you want to be in if you're Jewish. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. Of the people of Israel, like the man, Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin's the most honored Jewish tribe. It's one of the two that remain at the time of his writing. Benjamin's the son of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, who turned his name as Israel. Uh, he had to serve his, her father 14 years to marry her. The king, the first king of Israel, comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and his name is Saul, which is the name that Paul's mom gave him, right? He was born Saul. It's his Jewish name is Saul. I mean, his pedigree is really impressive. His genealogy is perfect. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Because there's Jews that have been spread all over the world for the last couple thousand years. A lot of them have forgotten the language, which is kind of embarrassing if you're Jewish. But, but Paul's like, no, I actually was trained at an elite Hebrew school. I speak Hebrew. 
In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee, which means he's part of this elite religious professional class of Jews, meticulously kept the law. As for zeal, persecuting the church, like how passionate was Paul as a Jew? He was fanatical. Uh, He persecuted infidels. He was on a persecution tour. He traveled the world and jailed Christians. As for righteousness based on the law, he says one word, faultless. (laughs) So he says he kept all the rules with perfection. So one of the main religious dynamics surrounding Paul and the early Christians is the Jews saying, no, you're wrong. We're right. You guys are wrong. You don't get it. Here's Paul proving, I do get it. I've been there. My credentials are better than any of your credentials. I was born Jewish. I have the perfect ancestry, the most honored tribe. went to the best school. I kept the language. I'm a member of the elite class. I am zealous. I'm famous for my zealousy, and I was faultless in regard to the law. He has the ideal Jewish pedigree. He's got this Jewish thing down, right? He was Jewish famous. He was an inspiration for young Jewish boys. They want to be like Saul. And this is what he says at the end of chapter 7, or the end of verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I think about two cars, and one surpasses the other. I consider all this stuff nothing because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul had it all, but he threw it all away. Why did you do that, Paul? He would say, because I met Jesus. That's what he would say. I met Jesus. And to to put it mildly, my values changed. My values changed. From a Jewish perspective, the way, which is the way that Paul used to live, the way Paul used to believe, your worth must be proved through acts of religion. Salvation must be earned it's the result of gaining enough credits, enough merit badges, enough stripes on your, on your sleeve to join the club. By the way, there's only one club that makes it, and if you want to be a part of the club, the club's got to let you in. Paul seems to have this especially intense repudiation for this perspective, and I think the reason is he used to be one of these guys. It'd be one thing if he was criticizing the Jews as an outsider, but he's not. He's criticizing the Jews from like the quintessential insider. He used to be one of these guys who rooted... Uh, his confidence in his own performance. And now he realizes that way of life is empty. Paul was the poster boy. He was the up-and-coming hero. But then one day, on his way to gain more accolades, more stripes on his sleeve by putting more Christians into more jails, the risen Christ appeared to him on the road and asked him a question. What are you doing? Right? What are you doing? And that's when stuff changed for Paul. He took off the phylacteries and the religious robes and all the luxury of the Pharisees, and he began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and starting Christian churches. He let go of all his impressive Jewish credentials, his religious mastery, his racial privilege, and started preaching about the grace of God for all people. And that's really 
the fundamental distinction between the beliefs of the Jews at that time and the beliefs of the Christians at that time. The beliefs of the Jews at that time was that salvation was essentially a reward for a life well lived. And the beliefs of the Christians at that time, which is still the beliefs of the Christians according to our texts, is that salvation is a gift from God. To say it even more simply, for the Jews, these religious Jews, these experts in the law, salvation was about them. For the Christians, salvation is about God. And it's interesting because I still see this parallel in our culture today, friends, and I see it at funerals. That's where I see it. Where somebody will be kind of honored and people will say, well, she was such a great person or he did so many good things. And kind of the logic is they did more good things than bad things. And the implied conclusion then is that they deserve to go to a better place. They're in a better place. They, They kind of deserve it. They did... Whereas Christian teaching maintains that God is love, God gives love, our only hope is the love of God. It's it's not about us. It's all about God. So what Paul used to value, his ethnic purity, his highly desired ancestry, his honored tribal connection, his elite education, his native language, his violent zeal, his faultless religious record, he now considers garbage Sometimes it's translated refuse. Sometimes it's translated filth. The Greek word that he uses is not a polite word to say. It is skubalon, which literally, literally means the excrement of animals. That's the word he uses here. So the polite way to say it is dung, maybe. But that's what he's talking about. Consider all of that dung, which like our culture's profane word for poop is used to not just refer to the actual, but to clearly indicate the opinion of the person speaking that whatever is being labeled scubalon is totally worthless, right? It's totally worthless. It's just a pile of scubalon, right? That's what that is. Paul's saying, I had all this amazing accolades, all this credential, all this pedigree, and now I consider it just scubalon. It's like, it's just a bunch of it's just, it's just horse scubalon. That's what that is. It's just a bunch of junk. So we hear Paul declare with explicit clarity a shift in his values. And when your values change, what you want changes too. When what you believe to be important changes, and now you think something else is actually more important, what you want changes. So finally, last question, what does Paul want now? What does Paul want now? He spent the first half of his life pursuing one thing. Well, what does he want now? He tells us really clearly in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying he wants three things. First, he wants to know Christ. He's talking about an intimate, personal, experiential knowledge, not just an intellectual understanding. He doesn't want to know more about Christ. He wants to know Christ. He wants to have a real friendship with Jesus. That's what he wants. Secondly, he wants to know the power of the resurrection. He doesn't need to know more about the resurrection. The resurrection happened about 30 years prior to this point. There's still people who saw Jesus get killed and saw Jesus resurrect, including the Apostle John. Paul's not asking John for more details about the event. He doesn't look for, he's not looking for a proof. He wants to know the power of the resurrection. He wants to know the power that is so powerful that it 
It overwhelms death itself. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that is currently at work in the life of Christians and in the Christian community at large. He wants to know the power of the resurrection. And the third thing he wants to know is the fellowship of his suffering. Sometimes that's translated, I want to know the participation, I want to share in or participate in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to share in Christ's experiences, all of them, the victories and the sorrows. That's because he wants to know Christ. I remember the first time I read this, I want to share in his sufferings. I remember the first time I read it because it, it, it surprised me. I want to share in his sufferings. And this is one of the many places where being a parent has actually given me some insight into what the Bible is actually talking about. This week, Carmen was on the phone with our daughter. She was hearing about this big event that Sienna is planning. She was super excited about it. And I'm outside writing the sermon, and I hear Carmen on the inside of the house. I hear her say, I wish I could be there. This important, wonderful event happening in our daughter's life. And what does Carmen want? Because she's a good mom. She wants to be there. She wants to share in the experience with her. And because Carmen's love for her kids is real, her desire to share in their experiences is not limited to the fun stuff and the happy stuff. But it also extends to the hard things. And all of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. This is, this is what drives us to stay up all night when our kids are sick. This is why we go sit with our children in the hospital. This is why we travel across the country when they're grieving. Because we love them. We want to know them. We want to share, not just in the, you know, the high five after the winning soccer goal, but we want to share in their sufferings too. That's what Paul wants. He wants to know Christ He wants to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the fellowship. Like, let's do this together. I want to know your suffering, Christ. Paul now sees suffering for the faith, not as a penalty, but as a privilege. Paul is declaring that when we suffer with Christ, when we share in his sufferings, we are participating in the very work of Christ the work that Christ came to earth to do. Paul is saying, I used to value all this stuff. I don't value these things anymore because my values changed. I used to want these things, but I don't want these things anymore because my desires changed. To which I just have to ask, what happened to you, Paul? And his response would be, I met Jesus. It's just as simple as that. I met Jesus, and now what I want is to know him I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know what it's like to share in his suffering. So whatever happens, this is what I want. This is Paul saying, this is what brings me joy. Amen? This is what brings me joy. Let's pray.